Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And previously on Tech Stuff... Wait, no, that that doesn't sound... Hang on, what? Previously on Tech Stuff. We covered the origins of the internet service provider Earthlink. I talked about how Sky Dayton founded the company, which started off with 10 modems that would connect customers with the internet at large, dial-up modem systems is what we're talking about here, and then how Dayton and his team grew that business by partnering with other companies to expand service. Earthlink leased capacities from companies like credit card verification services and other ISPs to reach across the United States and then eventually uh, into Canada and then beyond. Now, along the way, Sky would step down as CEO. He handed control over to Gary Betty while Dayton would stay on as chairman of the board for a while longer. Earthlink made several acquisitions, they bought up a lot of regional small ISPs, and they grew as a result until in 1999, the company announced it was going to merge with another company, MindSpring, which was a rival ISP located out of Atlanta, Georgia, my hometown. And in 2000, those two companies became one, and the merger meant that the new version of Earthlink was the second largest ISP in America at that point, behind America Online. Uh, America Online actually had a pretty significant head start in the consumer market. Now, one thing I should clarify is that balance of customers, because often I find myself thinking of ISPs from a household customer perspective, because, I mean, I am... I am an ISP customer, like a household customer, and I'm not actually running a business like that. But obviously, a lot of ISP customers are actually businesses, not consumers, not individuals. And Earthlink was a leading ISP for enterprise customers, meaning Earthlink had a lot of businesses as their clients. And when you look at the consumer market, there were other companies that were performing much better in that market, like the aforementioned America Online, as well as Prodigy, which, like America Online, had begun as an online service provider, which is not the same thing as an ISP. It's sort of a a walled garden network. It's not access to the internet at large. But they had also transitioned from that to an internet service provider. By 2000, America Online had 20 million subscribers, largely because AOL was sending out installation CDs like they were nothing. I mean, if you were back around those days, like if you were checking your mail, you probably made a few jokes about turning AOL CDs into drink coasters or a mobile for your kid or something because it seemed like you would get a couple in the mail every week or so. But that kind of strategy was actually working as AOL had around those 20 million customers. Earthlink by contrast, had slightly fewer than 5 million customers. So yeah, there's like a 15 million person gap there. But Earthlink also had a huge number of enterprise customers. So the company was doing pretty well from a financial perspective, at least as far as revenue. When it came to profit, not so much. But that's because Earthlink was pouring a lot of that money into acquiring other companies and growing. So it was kind of a growth engine, but not a profit engine at this point. Now, something else was going on in the technological world while Earthlink was growing. So we're going to be doing some backtracking in this episode because there was stuff that 
Uh, I guess technically I could have covered in part one, but I really wanted to get to that that uh, description of how Earthlink and Mindspring would become the Earthlink of the future. But uh, the thing that we want to go back to right now is the ascension of other technologies that allowed for internet broadband connectivity, because not only would it create alternatives to dial-up, it also was tied into what would become the major competitor and ultimately the death knell for a lot of internet service providers. So Earthlink launched in the dial-up modem era as it was passing its peak. So dial-up was starting to get to uh, the, be- the, the most that it's ever been. And then it was very slowly starting to decline. Now, dial-up modems are still very much a thing. They're not gone. They exist to this day. So when I talk about a dial-up era, I really mean the period in which that technology was the dominant one. And also, when Earthlink launched, a state-of-the-art consumer modem would get you the blistering speed of 28.8 kilobits per second. But around the corner was the emergence of 56 kilobits per second modems. Still, other technologies would enter the fray and change things, and we were about to enter the era of broadband. Now, anyone who used an old dial-up modem to do something like load up a web page knows that it could be painstakingly slow. If you had a 28.8 kilobits per second modem, and you wanted to log into a page that had 240 kilobytes of images and other stuff in it, it would take more than a minute for that web page to load on your browser. And a lot of early web pages went sparingly on images for that reason. So let's say you wanted to do something even more intensive, like you wanted to download an MP3, a song. And for the sake of this example, we'll say it's an MP3 of a song that's 5 megabytes in size. Now over a 28.8 kilobits per second modem, that would take you about half an hour to download one song. And this was the top of the line modem when... Earthlink was launching, and a lot of people were actually using modems that had much lower data transfer rates. Even when we'd get up to 56 kilobits per second, you'd still be talking about waiting almost 15 minutes to download a single song. And the whole time, you're taking up a phone line. So some folks, like my parents, would arrange to have a separate phone line specifically for the computer modem, which was a good idea because If you were using a shared line and someone somewhere else in the house picked up a phone, it would interrupt your connection and you would have to reset. And if you were in the middle of a a file transfer, you might have to start all over again. But as I mentioned, there were other technologies that were poised to keep things moving along at a faster pace. And one of them was a tech that had been in development more as a method of allowing telephone companies to compete with cable companies, not necessarily in the internet space, but in the providing of video type space. So this is going to get a bit technical, but stick with me. We need a super quick history of cable television, and I'll be specifically talking about coaxial cable, though you should know there's also fiber optic cable, but that would come much later. Coax cable essentially started in the 1940s with people who couldn't get a broadcast signal at their homes because they were just too far away from the center of broadcast, and the antennas that they were using weren't picking up a strong enough signal for them to see anything. So they began to erect antennas in strategic locations, like at the top of a hill, and then they would run cable from the antennas down to the televisions in the nearby neighborhoods. Uh, There were 
enterprising individuals who did this and set it up as a business. And so their business was that they would build the antenna and then you would pay them for them to run cable from the antenna down to your home. And this was called Community Antenna Television or CATV. That was the birth of cable television. People discovered that the cable signal would weaken the further it has to travel. So if you lived a far distance from that hill where the antenna was, and you just ran cable from the antenna to the TV, you still might not get something that is watchable. But you could put in amplifiers, so the signal would come into the amplifier, the amplifier would boost the signal and push it further down the line toward the television. So you might have several amplifiers on a single line. However, amplifiers could also introduce noise into the signal, and thus that could get boosted as well. And cable systems weren't terribly reliable, so they weren't incredibly popular. They were just seen as the only alternative to no television at all if you happen to live outside of a broadcast area. So they were better than nothing, but it wasn't until the 1970s that advancements in technology and process would improve the experience and cable companies the way we know them today would become viable. The coaxial cable is an important part of this. If you were able to see the layers in a coaxial cable, you would see that at the very core of it, there is a conductive material, copper wire. Uh, surrounding that copper wire is a layer of dielectric insulating material. And surrounding that is an outer conductor called the shield. So the outer and inner conductor are both aligned in the same direction, along the same axis. Think of a small straw nestled inside a larger straw, and that's why it's called a coaxial cable, because they're both along the same axis. Information travels through coaxial cables along a carrier wave, which then is modulated. You can modulate it by its amplitude, by its frequency, and by its phase. This gets into the electromagnetic spectrum, which is the range of all types of electromagnetic radiation, from super long radio waves that are miles and miles long, to super short gamma rays. We can describe these waves in terms of wavelength, how long those waves are, or frequency. Frequency refers to the number of wavelengths that pass a given point within a second. We measure frequency in hertz, with one hertz being one wave per second. Okay, so how does cable TV send all those channels of content simultaneously? How come they don't all get mixed up? Well, the word channel is the key. A channel is actually a band of frequencies uh, that is reserved to a specific television source, like MTV. I mean, why not MTV? I want my MTV. So in the U.S., a channel consists of a bandwidth of spectrum within that, that cable. You know, the, the cable can hold a certain spectrum of frequencies. Well, a channel is a bandwidth of 6 megahertz, so it's 6 megahertz wide across the available spectrum that the cable can carry. And within that 6 megahertz band is all the information of that specific channel of television. That 6 megahertz belongs to MTV. But you move over another 6 megahertz to the next band, and you're at a different channel. And your cable box acts as a tuner. It switches over to accept signals from a specific band of frequencies. So it goes from one specific 6 megahertz band to tune into whichever channel you want to watch. And the capacity of coaxial depends on a few factors, but generally we're talking about the ability to carry more than 106 megahertz channels 
on analog signals that can travel across a coax cable. Now note I said analog. Things switch up when you go to digital. Now the reason I went into all of that is twofold. One is because the telephone companies were rather jealous of cable companies. Telephone companies already had wired infrastructure laid out across entire countries. If a phone company could deliver content the way cable companies did, it would represent an enormous jump in revenue. Because remember, once you've built out your infrastructure so it so it meets, you know, the vast majority of, of individuals who could be customers, you've hit market saturation. You can't really grow anymore. So you have limited ways of increasing your revenue, and we typically reward companies that show growth year over year. It's not just it's not just good enough to perform well. You need to grow. The other reason is that later on in the 2000s, we'd see the rise of cable internet connectivity, which would make a huge impact on the ISP industry. But first, let's go back over and look at the phone companies. So the telephonic infrastructure relied on what are called twisted pair cables, which doesn't mean that they're deviant or anything. They're not that kind of twisted. They're literally twisted together. This is something that dates all the way back to Alexander Graham Bell himself. Twisted pair cables consist of pairs of wires. So you get two wires, they form a circuit that's capable of transmitting data. And these two wires are twisted together, which in turn shields those wires from interference, also known as crosstalk, from other pairs of wires, which are also twisted. And a cable is made up of lots of these twisted pairs all bundled together. By the 1980s, researchers at telephone companies were working hard to figure out how to deliver more information over telephone wires in an effort to compete against cable companies. It was possible to transmit data, like video, across these lines. There were television studios that were using twisted pair cables to send video from a, a studio to a broadcast area. But you couldn't do it with the same amount of throughput that you could manage with cable. The twisted wires just couldn't carry as much data per unit of time. And a big part of the problem was that having the same bandwidth for upstream and downstream transmissions, in other words, having equal amounts of capacity to send stuff up and to bring stuff down would cause problems. And an engineer and scientist with Belcor named Joseph Lechleiter would find a big breakthrough. Lechleiter found that if you offset the upstream and downstream bandwidth allocation, meaning you'd allow more data to travel in one direction versus the other in that same amount of time, you could dramatically increase the overall amount of information that could travel over those lines. So it's called asymmetric, meaning the upstream and downstream bandwidths are not symmetrical. And because most users tend to pull down more information than they need to upload, the downstream side would get the most love. And to this day, it's pretty common to see a much higher download rate than an upload rate, though it's not always about the same process that Lechleiter found, but that, that's not really important. And it would take about two decades for Lechleiter's work to have a real practical application. It would be called ADSL, for Asymmetric Digital Subscriber Line. Most of the time, we just refer to it as DSL. A, and not all DSL is asymmetric. There's also symmetrical DSL, but a lot of people just shorten it to DSL anyway. Now, a DSL connection allowed for much greater data transfer rates than what you could accomplish with a regular dial-up modem. 
The dial-up modems, again, they maxed out at 56 kilobits per second, but DSL could reach speeds of more than 10 times that. And over time, as technology improved, it would reach speeds of up to 100 megabits per second. Now, if you listen to my episode about Section 230 and what that's all about, you've heard me talk about the Telecommunications Act of 1996. If you recall, I mentioned that this act was a truly huge piece of legislation, and Section 230 is just a tiny, tiny piece of it. And Section 230, for those who don't know, is a passage that grants widespread legal immunity to internet platforms for stuff that people post to those platforms. So in other words, it means that if someone posts illegal content on a platform, the platform itself isn't held accountable for that act. But Section 230 was such a tiny piece of the overall picture that I think it's safe to say most politicians weren't really focusing on it. One thing the act did was open up the possibility for both the cable industry and the telephone industry to get into the business of being internet service providers. Considering these industries already had massive infrastructures built into the fabric of the modern society, and that technologies like DSL and cable would mean they would eventually be able to offer up faster service than dial-up ISPs could, it would mean that there would be some fierce competition in the space. And that companies that were once bulletproof, like America Online and Earthlink, would have a more uncertain future. When we come back, I'll talk about how all this would converge and what would happen to Earthlink in the meantime. But first, let's take a quick break. So throughout the 90s, as telephone and cable companies worked to create an economically feasible means of entering the ISP industry, now that they had the green light to do so from the U.S. government, dial-up remained the primary way most people were connecting to the internet, and companies like Earthlink were doing well. But there was a ticking clock element going on. No one was certain when the broadband era would really take over from dial-up, but it seemed pretty much a guarantee that that is what was going to happen. But in those intervening years, Earthlink kept making big moves. So back in the 90s, before the MindSpring merger, Earthlink continued to make strategic partnerships with companies like PsyNet, or PSINet, another early ISP, to provide access to more of North America, including Canada. And it also signed a deal with Microsoft. Earthlink would provide customers with the company's browser, Internet Explorer, much as they had done with Netscape Navigator earlier. In return, Microsoft included Earthlink in a suite of pre-installed applications on Windows 95, and I cannot stress to you how valuable that would be for a company, to have your app, your uh, portal to your service included as a native application on the most popular operating system in the world. It is beyond valuable. Earthlink also began to offer ISDN service. Now, this was sort of a step between the normal phone lines being used with modems and the upcoming DSL lines. It provided faster data transfer rates, but it never really caught on in a huge way, particularly since DSL would outperform ISDN benchmarks. So it was kind of a a stopgap measure that came a little too late. So no one, not, not that many people really adopted it. In 1997, out in California, Earthlink signed a deal with Charter Communications, a cable company, and the partnership would be one of the early ones to provide cable internet service to a particular region. So this wasn't nationwide or anything. It was for a a very specific market, 
and it did involve cable modems, so this was an early example of that, Earthlink executives were clearly thinking ahead because even as modem speeds were switching over to 56 kilobits per second, they were looking at technologies that were clearly going to be faster and would replace dial-up service within, within a few years. So now it's time to talk a little bit about how cable modems work. Now, I mentioned that television channels each take up 6 megahertz of a band of frequencies across the available spectrum of frequencies that can travel down a coaxial cable. With cable modems, the downstream internet traffic to customers likewise takes up 6 megahertz band of frequencies. Upstream is a little different. Instead of taking up a whole channel, it actually only uses a 2 megahertz band of frequencies. So you get 6 megahertz width down, 2 megahertz width up. And since most people are downloading way more than they're uploading, this really isn't a problem for most people. At the provider end of this system, you've got your cable modem termination system. At the customer end, you've got your cable modem. And that cable modem has a few components that allow you to access the internet. First, there's the tuner. This component tunes the modem to the specific channel that's carrying the internet signal, uh, as opposed to a channel carrying CATV signals. The incoming signal then goes to the next component, a demodulator. Now, the most common demodulators have four functions. Uh, a quadrature amplitude modulation, or QAM, demodulator takes an encoded radio frequency signal and turns it into a simple signal that can be processed by the analog-to-digital converter, or AD converter. The converter's job, it's in the name, really, it's to take an analog signal that is a continuous signal, which in this case is an electric signal with varying voltage, and then transforms that continuous signal into digital information, which means it turns into a series of zeros and ones. Next, you've got your error correction module. This module analyzes the signal and compares it against a known standard to identify any potential errors that happened in transmission. Frequently, we're dealing with data that is in MPEG format for the purposes of grouping data into network frames. MPEG is not just for movies and music. It's, it's a, a kind of a, a data arrangement strategy. So there's also an MPEG synchronizer in cable modems, which really is just there to make sure that the frames are all in the correct order. You can kind of think of it as being responsible for making sure all the puzzle pieces are going to the right place to make the full picture. Likewise, the modem also has a modulator to take the data you're sending back upstream and convert it into a radio frequency signal that can travel over the cable connection. Another component of cable modems is the Media Access Control, or MAC, address. Now, this is pretty much a standard part of all networking equipment, and that includes devices that connect to networks, and it serves as a way for these devices to differentiate themselves on a local network. So we're really talking about local networks here, not internet, but it's important because otherwise uh, you wouldn't have a way for the network to send the correct information to the correct device. If you have a bunch of different devices connected to the same local area network, they have to have a way to say, this is who I am, so that the right data goes to them. All devices connecting to a network have a MAC address, and it's how we make sure the right data goes to the right device. Otherwise, you'd have an issue with multiple devices connected to a local area network that has a further connection to the internet at large, and everything would be mixed up, and that'd be terrible. Cable modems also have a microprocessor to oversee operations within the modem itself, and that's a quick and very high-level look at how early cable modems worked. 
There's a lot more to it than that, but it would require its own episode. The important thing for our story is that the cable modems represented another big step forward in speed. Also, as a cable connection, as well as the DSL connections, are constant, that means you don't have to worry about turning it on and turning it off. Like, assuming there's no interruption in service, you always have a persistent connection to the internet, unlike a dial-up, which has to activate a phone line, and then it has to hang up at the end of the session. Your, your cable modems are always connected. Your dial-up modems are only connected when you activate it. So internet services in general and the web in particular started to offer more data-intensive features such as streaming audio or video. The need for broadband solutions became more pressing. But we're still in the early days here, and dial-up modems would remain a big player for a while. Earthlink kept making big alliances. The company signed a deal with Sprint that gave Sprint a stake in Earthlink in return for access to Sprint's customers. And a deal with Apple would mean that Earthlink's software became the default internet connectivity software on Apple's iMac computers. Earthlink also was the default connectivity software for NEC-ready computers and Packard Bell computers. And CompUSA chose Earthlink to be the default internet connectivity software provider for the computers sold in retail stores. All of this led up to that merger with Mindspring, which was likewise making big deals. Mindspring was doing very much the same sort of stuff Earthlink was doing, but over in Atlanta. And Earthlink was able to dip its toe into DSL through its partnership with Sprint. And a quick word about the differences between DSL and cable. So DSL goes over phone lines, but you didn't have to have a landline to also get DSL. You can think of DSL traffic as taking up a frequency of bands and telephone lines that's well outside the frequency bands that are used to transmit voice communications. With DSL, you could get pretty fast internet speeds, much faster than dial-up, but it also depended upon how far away you were from the DSL provider. Kind of like when I described cable earlier, if you're really far away from whatever the provider is, you're going to get lower transfer rates. So you're going to get lower internet speeds. That's the way we typically think about it. Cable, on the other hand, could provide a good experience even if you were far away from a provider. However, DSL allowed for a dedicated line to each customer. So when you had a DSL line, you had a, a dedicated connection, whereas cable is a shared connection across entire neighborhoods. So with cable, if there are a lot of people in your neighborhood who are all really heavy internet users, you're going to see your speeds take a hit because they might be streaming 4K video or something, or they might be gaming, they might be doing something that's just taking up a lot of bandwidth. And so, as a result, the overall bandwidth that's shared for the entire community is taking a hit. Anyway, Earthlink was now working with partners that would allow it to kind of transition from dial-up, but only because they were piggybacking onto these other providers. After the merger with Mindspring, the new company, officially called Earthlink Incorporated, would continue to grow. And like we've seen, that growth was mainly through acquisitions, such as when Earthlink purchased an ISP called OneMain.com. That's O-N-E-M-A-I-N. And Earthlink continued to branch out beyond dial-up, DSL, and cable access, partnering with Hughes Network Systems to provide satellite broadband services for customers who lived in rural areas where cable or DSL connections could not reach. So satellite systems work differently from DSL and cable in that you need to have a transceiver, uh, in other words, a satellite dish, 
to interface with the system. You still have a modulator, which is the bit that translates data from one form to another. When you send something on your computer to the internet, the modulator converts the digital information from your computer into radio signals that the satellite dish then transmits up to a satellite that's up in orbit way above the customer. And the satellite then beams that information back down to the provider, which sends data back up into space to that satellite, which then beams it back down to the customer. So it all works the same way, but in reverse. Now, as you might imagine, beaming data up into space and then having it come back down again and having that happen in two different directions means that there can be a bit of delay when you do something on the internet, like when you click on a link. And then there can be a delay before you see a result. The data rate transfer speed can still be really high. You can still get you know data at very fast rates, but there's more latency or lag than you would have with other solutions. Earthlink even secured an agreement with the leading ISP in the United States, America Online. That agreement would allow Earthlink to use Time Warner cable lines to offer up high-speed cable internet service to customers, because at this point, there was the infamous America Online Time Warner merger, one of the mergers that at one point was pointed at as being one of the worst big tech mergers of all time. The year was 2000, and Earthlink was looking to put behind it a history of struggling to be profitable. Earthlink had not really made a profit yet, They were bringing in a lot of revenue, but again, they were spending a lot in acquisitions and efforts to grow and stay ahead of the competition, as well as to make moves in diversifying beyond dial-up. And this was likely a necessity, as the period between 1998 and 2000 saw thousands of local and regional ISPs, like around 10,000 of these suckers. But they started to consolidate, or they were getting swept up in various acquisitions, And there was a general move of consolidation in the industry, and Earthlink was one of the bigger fish gobbling up smaller fish in the ISP pond, as it were. Sky Dayton, meanwhile, the founder of Earthlink, who had remained chairman but who had stepped down as CEO, founded another venture called Boingo. This company also focused on providing internet service, but through Wi-Fi. And rather than building out infrastructure, Boingo would partner with companies that had already built out Wi-Fi networks, much as Earthlink had partnered with other ISPs or network systems back in the day. Earthlink would be an investor in Boingo, but the two ventures wouldn't be intertwined too much. In the early 2000s, Earthlink would feel the squeeze as more households made the transition from dial-up to DSL, cable, or satellite service. While Earthlink had partnerships with companies that provided these services, the fact was that Earthlink itself didn't own any of that infrastructure. And the Telecommunications Act of 1996 meant that phone and cable companies could also serve as internet service providers. So Earthlink was looking at a couple of major threats to its business. There was a migration away from premium dial-up internet service, that was its bread and butter, and there was the rise of the mega ISPs that owned much of the broadband infrastructure. In fact, some of them were major parts of the backbone of the internet. So while Earthlink would start to post some profitable quarters, largely due to a combination of cost-cutting and diversifying into broadband, Analysts were already worrying that the company was going to go from a big fish to bait in that ISP pond. I'll explain more when we come back from this quick break. A lot happened in the 2000s, even if I can't remember most of it. 
We saw the dot-com bubble burst, which had a major ripple beyond just the dot-com companies themselves and affected related businesses, including the ISP business. We saw the move to broadband that meant that Earthlink was going to lose subscribers, even as it was adding more broadband services or partnering with other companies that did the same. In 2005, while Earthlink would add some broadband customers, the balance was out of whack when it compared against the loss of dial-up customers. Earthlink would lose 73,000 customers in 2005 as a whole. And then a decision by the U.S. Federal Communications Commission, or FCC, really hit Earthlink hard. The decision gave telecommunications companies the right to stop leasing lines to third-party DSL providers at wholesale prices you know, like Earthlink. So previously, these companies were compelled, they were regulated to offer those wholesale lease rates to third-party ISPs. That's how Earthlink built much of its business. It leased those lines from these bigger companies at a lower rate and then resold them to customers at a higher rate. That was just the basics of the business. But the FCC decision and a subsequent decision by the U.S. Supreme Court that upheld it meant that the telecom companies were under no obligation to continue doing this. They didn't have to offer those lower prices to third-party ISPs. In the short term, the telecom companies were agreeing to continue to lease lines to ISPs. So even though they weren't compelled to, they continued to do it because these ISPs were really big customers. But since the telecom companies were themselves starting to become ISPs, the writing was on the wall, right? Because the idea is, yeah, I'll continue to lease this to you at a lower rate, but meanwhile, I'm building out my own internet service provider business, and once it gets big enough where I don't need you anymore, I'm going to cut you off, and then I get a twofer. I, I get to sell to your customers instead of having you do it, and... I get to squeeze you out of business so I don't have a competitor anymore. Yeah, it was a little nefarious. Earthlink's strategy to combat this was multifaceted. Part of it was to get into building out its own infrastructure to compete against the cable and telephone companies. But it was way behind on that front, right? Like, I mean, after all, let's imagine that you walk into Cookie Town, USA, where there are, you know, a dozen top-level cookie companies there, and you decide you're going to compete, but the cookie companies have already managed to buy up almost all of the ingredients needed to make cookies, and they have saturated the market with cookies, it would be very hard for you to make any uh, inway into that system. Well, Earthlink was kind of facing a similar thing, but instead of cookies, well, there were cookies because it's the internet. Bad analogy. My fault. I'll go sit in the corner. Okay, I'm back. So Earthlink also looked to launch its own cell phone business at this time and its own landline business. Essentially, it was trying to enter a very established and very competitive market. In 2005, Earthlink helped launch Helio, which was another company led by, you guessed it, Sky Dayton, the founder of Earthlink. Helio was a mobile virtual network operator, or MVNO. And like Earthlink, like Boingo, this was another business that would run services on top of the infrastructure that was owned by other companies. I'm sensing a theme here. The initiative proved unprofitable for Earthlink, which would pull out of the arrangement in 2007. So it was only part of Helio for two years. As for Helio, Virgin Mobile USA would acquire it in 2008 and would sunset the brand in 2010. Uh, 
Interesting little side note here. Sky Dayton has this history of starting up companies and then stepping down a couple of years later. I think I mentioned it in the last episode. He, he strikes me as the sort of person who really likes to get things moving and then hand that over to somebody else who's better at fostering and growing a, a company. And then he moves on to start something new again. But another part of Earthling's strategy to kind of fight back against the these uh, strikes that were against it was really getting started around 2004. It was the, the bid for the opportunity to become the Wi-Fi service provider of municipal customers. So in other words, to become the municipal Wi-Fi company for cities like Philadelphia, uh, Atlanta was one as well. There were quite a few. And these were cities that were looking to create city-wide Wi-Fi service for citizens. The idea being that instead of using wired connections for everybody's internet connectivity, maybe you offer up Wi-Fi as well. And part of this strategy would prove to be a lot more thorny than Earthlink executives may have anticipated. So the story plays out in much the same way across the different cities. So we're going to stick with Philadelphia to learn what happened there, but just know that what happened in Philadelphia is very, very similar to what happened in other cities across the United States. The original agreement in Philadelphia would give Earthlink access to city utility poles to mount Wi-Fi routers to provide service to people in Philadelphia. And that's a big part of it, is that the ability to access those poles is key for something like this. And you don't just magically get it. You have to go through a lot of bureaucracy in order to land that permission. And it's expensive and time-consuming, but this was part of the deal. And the arrangement meant that Earthlink was to provide 23 zones throughout Philadelphia that would be free internet hotspots. So it wasn't that all Wi-Fi was free, but in these 23 spots around the city, citizens would be able to access the service free of charge. Now, beyond those zones, you would still have Wi-Fi coverage and citizens would still be able to access the Wi-Fi, but they would have to subscribe to Earthlink's service for Wi-Fi internet, foregoing a physical connection entirely. So you could, in theory, have a Wi-Fi receiver in your home. You pay Earthlink, assuming you're not in one of those free hotspots. You would pay Earthlink for the privilege of being able to connect to their network, and you would get your internet that way. But a couple of big challenges made this way harder than either Philadelphia or Earthlink anticipated. First, the marketing strategy was lackluster and Earthlink was not receiving as many subscribers for their service as they had projected. So they weren't getting as much revenue in to help support the initiative as they had planned for. But just as significant of that was that the company and the city discovered that in order to provide the amount of coverage needed to meet the terms of this agreement, Earthlink was going to have to build out way more infrastructure and deploy many more Wi-Fi routers than the initial plan called for. The project went well over budget and became a difficult thing to manage, and the low subscriber response meant that the whole endeavor was becoming very expensive. Gary Betty, the CEO of Earthlink until 2007, had been gung-ho on the municipal Wi-Fi initiative, but then he got sick and he passed away in January 2007, and the succeeding CEO of Earthlink, Rolla P. Huff, decided that it was a long shot to make the programs work from an economical standpoint. And so starting in 2007, 
Earthlink began to extricate itself from the various deals it had made with the United States cities to be the Wi-Fi provider for municipal Wi-Fi. Earthlink's reversal hurt the company's reputation quite a bit. Cities like San Francisco had banked on Earthlink being a Wi-Fi provider with the ambitious plan to offer free Wi-Fi to all San Francisco residents with a deal that would see the city, Earthlink, and Google work together. But Earthlink's announcement that it was selling off its municipal Wi-Fi assets meant that that plan had to be scuttled. Things got even uglier in 2008 when Earthlink essentially gave Philadelphia an ultimatum. Take the Wi-Fi service off of our hands or we will shut it down. So in other words, Earthlink was still maintaining and operating that network in Philadelphia. It had stopped building it out, but now it just wanted out completely. In 2008, Earthlink was still depending heavily on a dwindling base of dial-up customers. The company had managed to cut operating expenses largely by laying off the marketing and laying off employees. It was no longer trying to attract new customers, so it was really just trying to hold on to the people it already had. The dial-up customer base was getting smaller year over year as more people were making the switch to broadband, but by 2008, that rate of attrition was slowing down. So in other words, Earthlink would continue to lose customers, but the rate of loss was slowing down. So it's like it's like having your annual meeting and saying, hey, good, good news, everybody. We lost fewer people than we did last year. It's kind of a hard pep rally, I guess. It's not exactly the business model you want as the cornerstone for your company, but it's what they had. In 2010, Earthlink became embroiled in a multi-party debate about the merger between Comcast and NBC Universal. Earthlink objected to the merger and campaigned for the FCC to step in and stop it, or if not stop it, to bring that idea of compelling companies to lease lines to third-party ISPs at wholesale rates back, just as the telecom companies had done until 2005. They're saying, the cable companies never had to do that. Uh, but maybe they should, especially if you're having big content companies merging with provider companies. Ultimately, that plan did not work out, and the ISP landscape in the United States would become increasingly the domain haha, of huge companies that would get even more huger as some of the biggest mergers in business history would follow. So this is where we see those giant ISPs become truly enormous, and we see competition shrink as a result. Now, Earthlink still stuck around. It held on to its customers as fiercely as it could. Revenue and income would fluctuate wildly in the 2000s, with some years seeing more than a billion dollars in revenue, not, not profit, but revenue, and other years seeing that revenue drop to $600 million and then swing back the other way. Sometimes it was the acquisitions that helped Earthlink out and gave it a really good year, but sometimes those acquisitions would lead to big pains. And in 2017, news broke that Earthlink itself was going to be acquired. Another regional ISP in the United States called Windstream announced it would acquire Earthlink for a deal valued at $673 million. And it was an all-stock deal, and it also included Windstream assuming Earthlink's $436 million of debt meaning that once you factored the debt into the deal, it was really a $1.1 billion deal. 
Windstream had around 1 million consumer customers, you know, so non-business customers. And Earthlink had around 671,000, according to press releases about the merger. But this was about more than consolidating that small market of dial-up customers. Also, some of those customers were DSL or cable because both Earthlink and Windstream would purchase and resell lines on other networks. Uh, not a whole lot because it was hard to compete. Since they couldn't buy those lines or lease those lines at wholesale prices, they would have to mark up the price to make a profit. And that would just mean that you would, as a customer, a personal customer, you would look at the different ISPs in your area and you'd say like, well, I could go with AT&T or I could go with Earthlink, but Earthlink actually costs more than AT&T because Earthlink had to mark up the price in order to make a profit. Didn't make much sense. So the business customers were a really big part of this deal. It wasn't so much the consumers as it was the enterprise customers, as were the various tax benefits and other financial wizardry that's beyond my ken. So there are you know, reasons why these the Windstream came in to acquire Earthlink that are, go beyond just we want access to their customers. The deal happened in the winter of 2017, and it led multiple tech websites and magazines to declare Earthlink was effectively dead. But a little less than two years later, in December 2018, Earthlink would burst out of the grave, zombie-like, and call out for brains, which is my way of saying that Windstream would actually turn around and sell Earthlink off again to another party, this one an investment company called Thrive Capital out of Dallas, Texas. And the deal was for $330 million in cash. So remember... I mean, that's a lot of money. Don't get me wrong. It's a princely sum. But unless I'm doing my math incorrectly, it means Windstream spent more than $600 million on a company in stocks and then sold it for $330 million less than two years later. And that's not even touching that $436 million of debt that Earthlink had accrued. So that is, that's a yikes. But Earthlink does still exist. According to the company's website, it, quote, offers internet access, premium email, web hosting, and privacy and data security products and services to customers throughout the United States. Earthlink also has key partner relationships with several of the nation's largest providers, enabling the company to offer products and connectivity services available to millions of households nationwide, end quote. It still offers residential and business internet access. It is also partnered with companies like Norton to offer data privacy security options, and it also offers digital marketing solutions to businesses. So it's a company that is pairing other services with internet service provider services. So it's kind of, it's it's sales pitches that, yes, you can get ISP connectivity through other companies, but we are also providing these other complementary services to connecting to the internet that will make your connection more better. Meanwhile, we have seen crazy consolidation in the ISP market here in the United States. In many areas in the U.S., residents and, and businesses might only have maybe two choices in providers. Some are unlucky enough to have no real choice at all, particularly if you want broadband. There are still smaller third-party ISPs here. They do still exist, like Earthlink. But these companies often have rates that are pretty much the same as what you're going to find with the big providers, and they are typically leasing lines off from those big providers anyway. So even though you are subscribing to, you know, regional ISP A, they're still using the pipes that are controlled by the giant multi 
multinational, multi-billion dollar ISP company, mega corporation. So a lot of people just say, well, why don't I just go ahead and subscribe with the mega corporation and cut out the middleman? Uh, And a lot of this ties back to the concept of net neutrality. It's a concept that has been battered pretty hard over the recent past. Uh, It'll be interesting to see where net neutrality heads next because we have a a different administration coming into the United States. So I'm sure I'll be doing more episodes about net neutrality and talking about its ups and downs. Uh, That's something I'm looking forward to. But we have now come to the close of Earthlink's story. And I hope that this was interesting to you. I know that I use this story really to talk about a lot of other stuff, like how dial-up modems work, how cable modems work, how DSL works. But that's kind of the way I like to sneak in the tech information, is through the context of a bigger story. And all of those elements were incredibly important parts of Earthlink's story as well. Uh, I plan on doing some more episodes about things like the consolidation of the ISP business and how that has affected uh, the internet in general and specifically within the United States because I think that that's that's a really complicated story that we really need to take a closer look at. It's stuff that just kind of happened over the course of our lives, but when you start unraveling what the implications are, you start to see potential huge problems. So we'll probably do some more episodes about that as well. But those are my thoughts. I'm curious to hear what you guys have to say, especially if you have any ideas for future episodes of Tech Stuff. So reach out to me. The best way is on Twitter. The handle is TechStuffHSW. Let me know if there are any topics you want me to cover. You got any questions about tech? Maybe there's a trend in tech you would like me to talk about. Hit me up and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.